Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. As usual, we have another special edition, special guests all over the place. Uh, first, let me uh, introduce the regulars. Uh, of course, we have my friend and co-host, Nabate Isles, in the house. Yes, sir. How are you, Jamal? I'm good. I'm hanging in there. Yes, and, of course, uh, the legendary Bill Roden is, once again, say it all with me, a guest, <laughs> on, a guest on his own show. <laughs> How you doing, Bill? At an undis- undisclosed location. At undis- an undisclosed location at that. Yeah, 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 yeah. How you guys doing? <laughs> we're good. We're good. Our special guest today is a friend of the program. He's he's been here. He's been on the show a couple times uh, before, a while back. Um, it's Jonathan Jones. He's a national NFL writer with uh, Sports Illustrated. Um, and you know, last time we talked to him, he was with the Charlotte Observer covering uh, the Panthers Super Bowl run and. Back when when Cam was winning MVPs and all that, it seems like a long time ago. But uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully Cam gets his act back together. Um, how you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well, guys, and, and I appreciate you having me on again. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Uh, obviously, the big the big news is the NFL Combine. Um, I, I'm not sure. If, were you out there covering it? Yeah, I was up in, in Indy for, I don't know, three days. I have my combine stay down to a science now. I don't need to be there for five days in that cold and, and, and then drink until 3 a.m. with all the coaches and scouts and whatnot. So I'm in there for three days. I'm in there for two nights, a Wednesday morning to a Friday night, and I'm out of there. Wait, wait, hold Were on. you at the Black Folks dinner? You know, I, I had another dinner set up that one night, so I unfortunately couldn't make it. Wait, yeah, okay. Coaches and scouts drinking until 3 a.m. Aren't they supposed to be observing talent? Yeah. What's going on? That You see, that's why there are a lot of busts going on <laughs> in the first round. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, 3 a.m. was the time that I would go home. I mean, some, some of those folks <laughs> wouldn't get out of there until about 5 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Oh, they're exposed. No, no, <laughs> I wonder all that crazy stuff goes on at, at the Combine. What, 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 was your, what was your take you know, from from your perspective, what was your take on the combine? What were the what were the big stories to you? Yeah, I think I think um, you know DK Metcalf, the wide receiver out of out of Mississippi. Uh, I try to say Mississippi and not Ole Miss because of the, all the connotations with Ole Miss. You know, it, I <laughs> thank you. Stop myself. Yes. Like, don't, yeah, don't don't call <laughs> yeah. it that. We're just going to call it the University of Mississippi. Exactly. There you go. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's, he's made out of marble. You know, he ran a 4.33, um, and, you know, he's jumping 40 and a half inches. But he had something like 70 receptions at Mississippi, and he can't, he, he can't change direction. You know, there's, mm. there's an argument to be made that he is too big to play wide receiver. You know, he has like 1.7% body fat, allegedly, How which I don't possible? know if that's even humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's possible. Um, but he was, he was really the story of the combine for me. Um, I think he's the second most interesting guy in the combine, uh, behind Kyler Murray. And then of course the biggest story is what the Arizona Cardinals are going to do. Uh, and whether, you know, everything that they're talking about, I know we're going to get into it, 
but whether everything that they're talking about is is true mm. or if it's all like this elaborate smokescreen where they think they're they're just smarter than everyone else. Mm. Hey, Jonathan, what was so? What's your uh, impression of, of uh, Kyler Murray? I, I'm I'm just excited about what I see as a, a continued wave of these uh, you know these kind of versatile you know um, quote unquote athletic brothers coming into the league. What, what was your, your, your impression of him? Yeah, I got a, you know, I, I got a lot of takes on him and, and I'll tell you my, my one, my one on field take is that is I'm actually reserved. And that mm-hmm. is because he went out there. He, he has great film. There was no doubt he should have been the Heisman trophy winner. Mm-hmm. Um, he was electrifying uh, to me. He's the best quarterback in the draft. And, uh, you know, four years ago, uh, five years ago, he would have been taken in the third round because right. he was too short. Right. And and ten years ago, he would have been put at slot receiver because he was too black. Right. But, <laughs> but now, right, right. But but now we have like Russell Wilson came before him, and Russell Wilson showed everybody like, nah, we like I can do this. And so now we're actually talking about him as the number one overall pick. All of those things said, though. He played at Oklahoma between 190 and 195. Mm, and right. so what he has done over the past couple months is he's packed on this weight. He showed up to the combine. He's 207 at the combine. Everybody's like, oh, look at him. He's, he weighs more than Russell Wilson did at the combine. Well, Russell slimmed down at the combine so that he would run a faster 40. He was playing throughout college at 210, 215. Exactly. So we knew what he we, – we had tape of him playing at that weight and playing at a high level. I have never – and no one – outside of like his quarterback's coach has ever seen Kyler Murray place any semblance of football at 200 plus pounds. And so mm. until I see that, and we're going to see it some at the pro day, but then he's going to be doing a heavily scripted routine of 60 passes with wide receivers that he's been working with for, you know, a couple of weeks or at least a couple of days. I don't know what I can get out of that. So he's going to be playing in a whole new body. Right. And so because of that, I don't know how fair, the evaluation of him on film is going to be when he's added, you know, up to 17 more pounds. So all that said, though, I think that he's the best quarterback in the draft, no doubt. Um, And, you know, if I had a top five pick, I would, I would be okay with spending it on him. Number one overall, though, I'm going to have to see a lot of him in a private workout before I spend the number one on him. And that's what, that's what I was going to ask you about the Arizona Cardinals and the fact that they drafted a quarterback in Josh Rosen, they traded up from 15 to 10 to get him. And I felt he was the best mm-hmm. quarterback in the draft last year, I felt. you know, But he lacked weapons. David Johnson was, was inconsistent until you know, he started to pick it up. So he didn't really – and the offensive line was just battling injuries. So he situation didn't really work out for him. But – do you think the Cardinals could be ultimately making a mistake by giving up on Rosen and what can they get for him as well? So it's like a lose-lose situation for the Cardinals, uh, especially unless Kyler Murray becomes a pro bowler. Right. So you have to believe that Kyler is, is that all-star. And I think that he absolutely has all-star potential. Um, you know, I thought that Rosen was tied for second best. I would have taken Baker as the top quarterback, and then it was a Darnold or a Rosen, and you could have kind of convinced me of either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was Lamar Jackson, and then somewhere way down the line was Josh Allen. Um, and so, but, listen, I don't trust the Arizona Cardinals franchise. First of all, they haven't been good for <laughs> three years. Second of all, like what they did last year, 
to Steve Wilkes, um, yes. how they handled that entire thing. Uh, you know, you got a general manager who, who got an extreme DUI who wasn't able to uh, be at training camp with his first-year head coach. Um, mm. You know, they obviously, they obviously hit some adversity. Uh, I think if, if Steve Wilkes uh, and some of the coaching staff could go back, they would not have changed from 4-3 to a 3-4 um, or, or vice versa. You know, so th- I think that mistakes would be admitted to. But if you're going to fire the first-year head coach, that you spent all this time, you know, you, they, they had two interviews with him. He was their guy, all this stuff. I don't understand how you, you fire him, but you don't fire the guy who helped hire him, who has had, a, you know, three bad drafts, who hasn't had a winning team, uh, hasn't put a winning team together in the past three years, who had some off-the-field problems as well. On, on top of that, right, then you hire a guy in Cliff Kingsbury who did nothing at all spectacular in the college ranks as a head coach, who had a couple of very good quarterbacks come through and did not maximize their potential or even extend a scholarship to one of them who ended up being the number one overall pick in Baker Mayfield. You bring him on, and they rush the hell out of that hire uh, where he was Mm. the USC uh, offensive coordinator, weren't allowed to talk to him. They finally bring him in, and then apparently over eggs and sausage, they offered him a four-year deal with a fifth-year option. So I I have a lot of questions about that franchise, and then you have an owner, Michael Bidwell, who uh, clearly listens to what fans say and cares a lot about what fans say and doesn't necessarily trust what the people around him say as much. All of those things, uh, you know, if, if you're rooting for Kyler Murray uh, and there's no secession plan here with Larry Fitzgerald once he goes out the door, if you're, if you're rooting for Kyler Murray, I don't know how hard you should be rooting for Kyler Murray to go to this franchise. Wow. Yes. That's a great point. I hear, As I hear you talk about the double standards. Well, that's why that's why Colin Kaepernick was kneeling. <laughs> that that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to still talk about how raw of a deal Steve Wilkes got. I think we all understand why why Todd Bowles ended up getting the axe. Um, right, right. You know, and, and we can go back to, to all the Rooney Rule and the diversity hires. But did it surprise anybody on this call um, that that there was one minority hire uh, this this coaching cycle? No, of course not. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, hey, hey, Johnson. So when you talk to guys, particularly black, you know, we had um, San Diego Chargers head coach on uh, a couple of weeks ago. When you talk to, you know, just sort of black folks around the league, you know, the assistants and all that, what are they saying about? I mean, they look at this stuff. You know, you're looking at a league that's almost seventy percent of the players are, are African American. And you look at this kind of nonsense. What are people saying uh, that you talk to, whether it's players or, or aspiring coaches? Well, I think I think it's a whole bunch of eye rolls. In fact, I mean, this is it's a lot of eye rolls because there's always going to be an excuse. And this time it was, well, hey, there's an offensive revolution. Everybody wants the young, hot shot offensive mind. Uh, it doesn't matter if he has zero head coaching experience because before. Right. It was, hey, we want you to have NFL coaching experience. We want you to have uh, coordinator experience. Well, then you had black coaches who went out there and got that coordinator experience when they weren't um, being allowed to get that. Right. And so the goalposts, right, kept moving. And so now it's, hey, we want an offensive mind. And we don't care if that guy uh, has only been an offensive coordinator for one year. Uh, he stood behind Sean McVay in a Starbucks line. And so he knows football. And it, it doesn't matter if he's a good leader of men. It matters that he knows how to diagram plays. It's absurd what happened during the cycle, but the fact is everyone understands that the goalposts are moving. And then right. it's always, every single year, it's, hey, 
You just got to wait your turn, right? It's going to work. We just got to find some. We got to get more people uh, into the pipeline. That's what I kept hearing from everybody. Very well-meaning white folks. Well, we, we just got to get more of these guys into the pipeline. Well, what the hell have you been doing for the past 15 or 20 years? Right. Like, the, the Rooney Rule was not just to say, hey, come interview a black guy. The, the Rooney Rule had, had far greater, was supposed to have far greater impact. It was supposed to tell everybody, hey, you should start building up through the ranks smart coaches of every background and color. And the fact is that now they're saying, well, hey, we got to build a pipeline. You should have been doing that in damn 2003. But you know what? You know, I don't know uh, what you guys think. I mean, what, we, what, what you've described, what we talk about is white supremacy. So I think when we sit around, well, why do they do that? Well, they do it because it's, it's a, a white supremacist system where in the midst of this you know, black mass of all these players, they've got to artificially stop that black mass of players from percol- you know, percolating into coaching positions, general managers, you know, general managers, you know. So they have to do just what you described. It's not accidental. I don't think people, I think sometimes we describe these things and say it's an accident or well-meaning white. But no, I mean, I think this is, and I don't know what you guys do, but I think that this is intentional. And it's pointed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when 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 the same thing keeps happening over and over again, uh, it starts to look intentional. And 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 like you said, Jonathan, you know, there's always going to be excuses to make up for the fact, make up for the facts as they are. And the fact is, uh, there was one minority coach hired. Now, my point, you know, about about coaches being being fired, you can't. It's hard to argue that, right? As you mentioned. Um, we know why Todd Bowles was fired. He didn't get the job done. Um, coaches, coaches any color are hired to get fired. That, you know, Anthony Lynn um, said that much on our on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. So it's not about uh, uh, you know minority coaches getting fired. The question is, will do they get the same chances, the same second and third chances as you know as as white coaches usually get? So that that's the question. And and also executives. <clears throat> not opportunities for executives, uh, African American executives, to get that opportunity to be able to make those decisions. Uh, and what really disturbed me, someone like Eric Bieniemy, Kansas City uh, Chiefs right. offensive coordinator. Why wasn't he? Uh, did he even yep. get interviewed? No, right? I think he got a couple of interviews. He got a uh, couple of interviews, but, but like, you know, still, it's like someone like him, where it's like, okay, Andy Reid is is the this quote unquote mastermind. Uh, lack of a better term, of um, of that offensive system, but still, Bienmi was the one that that was still working with the offense and still in, in the film room with the offense. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, what what about? Are there any African American possibilities for GM or president of football operations, things like that, Jonathan? What any any guys coming up that are being groomed? Yeah, I mean, there, there are some. Some opportunities, and I think right now we have seen a, a few of the guys who, for for a while there, they were kind of the box checkers. And that's the other tough part, right? Is that hey, you got to take the interview if you're if you're one of these guys. It's really difficult to turn down those interviews. And I'll and I'll say this uh, to to Bill's earlier point about the intentionality of this. It's very similar in my mind to the Colin Kaepernick collusion case. It yeah. is not necessarily that there is some smoking gun, some memo, right, on NFL letterhead that went out to all 32 clubs that says, hey, 
you guys be sure not to hire this guy. Right. You don't have but, to do it. Right. You don't have to do it because it is so <laughs> right. ingrained. It, it's so ingrained in, in, in this DNA that everybody yeah. understands it without even ever having to say a word. And so when people are like, oh, he's never going to get a smoking gun, everybody, all, all the black folks are like, well, yeah, but we know what the smoking gun is. Exactly. Society. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, you, you just hit it on the. You just. I mean, that's what I'm saying. So I guess my question to you. So I think we understand. So what do? How do you change this? What do do? What leverage do players have? I mean, because you've got guys like Russell Wilson. The visible black guys aren't really saying anything. You know. I mean, and maybe that's that's the difference between football, and basketball. You know, where the visible black guys really do not seem inclined to call this call the spade a spade and say, what's going on right. here? Well, I, I think it's multi-layered, right? So first of all, you have um, NFL team owners that are, you know, majority conservative uh, and, and donate to conservative causes, are registered Republicans, right. uh, and, and we know which way they lean on that. And then you have also the fact that you don't have very long to make as much money as possible. And not only do you not have very long to make as much money possible, but that contract, your three-year, $27 million deal, that's not $27 million, right? right? We, we, yes. Unless you play all three years at that, you probably will not see that. And so if the average contract is three and a half years, and so when you get a guy who has made it, right, like a Russell Wilson, who has never been known to rock the boat. And if you don't, then okay, that's your prerogative. No, no, one, is, no one is surprised that Russell Wilson doesn't rock the boat, right? right. Um, right. You know, almost, almost like Derek Jeter. Like, nobody was surprised that Derek Jeter never, like, hopped into the fray on anything during his 20-year <laughs> career. Um, right. And so, okay, but that's who you are. That's fine. Um, or maybe it's not. But, but there's not a lot of security. And so it, then it gets really lonely at the top. Like, how many cats are willing to come out there – and speak in a way that is elegant, that is loquacious. Um, you know, I don't want to use the word articulate, but but you, have to be, right, but you do have to be impenetrable with your argument on this. And so at this point, you are looking for a guy who is untouchable uh, from a contract perspective, who is willing to go out there and speak truth to power, and then he's probably going to be on an island anyway right. uh, among his peers when it comes to star power. So that's a really tough thing to do in the NFL. I, I want to ask you a couple of Kaepernick questions. Um, but as, as a writer, as a writer, now you were Sports Illustrated, you were the observer. And oddly enough, we had this conversation like five years ago, almost the same conversation right. five years ago. As a writer, as a black writer, you know, you know uh, a person of color, uh, What's your position? I mean, how how much can you do? How much can you rattle rouse? Well, you know, I whenever I write, let's say about Kaepernick, for example, I try to to include, uh, and maybe this isn't every article, but I try to include that not only um, do I support his right to do what he was doing, but I support him and support the cause. Uh, I said that on radio. Uh, here in, on local radio here in Charlotte recently, and you should see in the text line that was just lighting up. Uh, <laughs> like I was, you know, I was following you until until you said that you supported the cause, and I'm like, I, I support racial uh, equality <laughs> right. and equality across the criminal justice system. Horrible like, that's thing. That's not a political position, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's 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 not a political <laughs> position. And so <laughs> we're talking about like 
the NFL is involving itself in politics, and I don't want politics. Like that, that's not political. Like just wanting right. fair criminal justice is not a a, a political stance. And so, um, and but also on top of that, and I don't I don't mean at all to act like like I'm leaving some profound legacy uh, by being a sports writer. But, you know, at some point in my life, I want to be able to look back and say, yeah, I did more than just a whole bunch of gamers and sidebars. You know, I actually wrote something that had some kind of meaning that helped shape, you know, some sort of conversation at some period of time about something impactful and meaningful. So uh, in that, you know, you do try to to make whatever small difference you can make. Speaking of uh, what's going on with, you know, the social dynamic of the NFL, which, of course, is, as we talk about, it's a cycle, continuous cycle. Um, The question and the line of questioning uh, at the scouting combine, very unusual, (laughs) to say the least, throughout the years, but also, too, just the whole um, image of, like, a meat market, like a slave auction, you know, like, um, what what can they do? Or what what can be talked about? Because I think the end, the the national Fo- the players association should really talk about this. Like, you know, what what is your take on Jonathan on what can be done to be able to to not look play, especially black players, not look like they're being uh, treated like objects or like being put on an auction. Um, what can be done to? I mean, the players association needs to address this. Right. Well, I'll tell you the the, the craziest thing is when you go down to the Senior Bowl and you're in Mobile, Alabama, you're right beside the water, and you go into the Mobile Convention Center, and this is where they do the weigh-in, and then the guys are in spandex, you got a bleacher you know, full of scouts and coaches, white and black, right? And, and these mostly black guys are stepping on the scale and getting measured and whatnot and, and being poked and prodded in front of everyone. And I kid you not, the room that they do it in is called the Exhibition Hall. Wow. And so here you are in Mobile, yeah, right here on the water, right? So, and, and you're in the exhibition hall being poked and prodded. The imagery, like it goes without saying, right? Like just the, the, the wows say enough. And, and, you, and so that, that's really odd. And the whole thing is, is it's difficult because you do have to inspect right? This guy that you are about to pour $20 million into over the next four years. You do have to make sure that his knees don't have arthritis in them. You do need to make sure that he's not going to embarrass your franchise. But, you know, are some of these questions, uh, plenty of these questions have, have no business being asked. And then I saw one where one guy said he walked into a, a room, a coach, it was, I think it was an offensive lineman, coach punched him in the chest and he said, you have a soft chest. Right. And I was like, <clears throat> you know what, how, how, what kind of man are you right. that you do that to, to a 20, 21, 22-year-old who is here hoping that you give him a job, knowing that he has zero recourse whatsoever. What does that say about you? Right. And so, um, you know, the, the NFL and some of these guys, they get, a, they get real cute with some of this stuff. And uh, I don't know if it needs to be the public outrage or if the NFL just needs to step in, as they have sometimes in the past when the questions have, have verged on questions about their mothers, questions right. about Des Bryant, right. orientation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, there, there does need to be something about it, but you can only prevent it to a point because, you know, again, there is, to a reasonable point, you do have to inspect these cats. Right. And, and, and like, you, like you're, you're, 
implying there's a difference between inspecting them and asking legitimate questions instead of punching somebody in the chest uh, instead of giving giving them a handshake when you first meet them. And you're talking about Nate Davis, the uh, uh, UNC Charlotte guard, uh, who said that that's what happened to him. Um, and then you have you have situations like Chris Boyd, the Texas cornerback, uh, who was asked if he had if he had two testicles. Now, I don't know what what possibly you, you could tell me that you're trying to get out of that question, other than other than to demean the person. And you could say, "Oh, I'm, I'm demeaning him in order to see what reaction he has." But this is ridiculous stuff. And then the optics when you when most of these guys are are black athletes and and most of the executives are white uh, men doing this to them. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And, you know, we talk about, you know, someone stepping in, the NFL stepping in. I mean, this is basic employment law. You can't even, if I go in and, t- and, and apply for a job, you can't even ask me if I'm married, much less ask me if I have two testicles. So, I mean, we just need, we just need basic right. common sense law to also be applied to the NFL. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey Jonathan, um, I want to get back to this Kaepernick thing. Um, hey, what did you think of the settlement? And do you think there's any chance that uh, the Panthers might be a landing spot for him because they've already got Eric Reed? The owner seems to be somewhat progressive. What do you think? Right. I, well, yeah, I am. I'm not convinced that the Panthers are convinced that Kaepernick is is the backup quarterback for them for whatever reason, and I don't know the the exact reasons for that. Um, I also personally do not believe and have not believed that he will play in the NFL again for, for all the obvious reasons. And I don't think that there was anything, I don't know this, um, but it would seem according to legal folks that there is nothing in his, uh, in a settlement that precludes him from being employed again. And certainly what his lawyer said about him wanting to get back in there, he wouldn't say that otherwise. Uh, but, but what I took from the settlement was it was a clear win for Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed. This is a, this is an image conscious league not one that always gets it right, but one that, that very, you know, heavily focuses on PR, right? And I'm not, and again, they don't always get the PR right, but they care about the PR and they care about their image. And the, the, they understand and that the layman, when they hear confidential financial settlement, that means that the more powerful group decided that, hey, the less powerful group has a point, but we want this point to go away for whatever reason. Well, the, <laughs> The NFL doesn't just let the kneelers, right, quote-unquote. They don't want the kneelers to win at any point in this. They can't let them win. The kneelers cannot win. And right. so by, by, by settling with them, it seemed to me to be a clear win where, uh, again, as we talked about earlier, I don't think that there was some smoking gun that was going to prove collusion and void the CBA. But I think a lot of people, myself included, have said – uh, there was probably enough embarrassing information that the NFL didn't really want to get out there. Uh, yeah. understood that Colin Kaepernick had a point. And then on top of everything, we all know the deal. It's not, it's not that, hey, the zone reads out. It's, uh, you know, it's not that a team would have to change systems when we just saw that the Ravens switched midstream for Lamar Jackson still made the playoffs. And Lamar Jackson is not Joe Flacco. It's not that, oh, he hasn't played in the NFL in two years when we just saw Josh Johnson, who hadn't thrown a pass in an NFL game in seven or eight years, right. go out there and win a game for Washington. So all, right. of those, all that stuff that they were saying for those years and putting out there through their favored uh, media members, we now know we have proof positive, even though we already knew, but now we know for sure that all that was bunk. And uh, one one last question for me, um, Jonathan. Uh, there's uh, Tyree Jackson, 
from Buffalo. He was the MAC offensive player of the year uh, this past year, led Buffalo to a 10 and 4 record. It's so funny how, going back to the whole difference of uh, how people are evaluated, Josh Allen is a top 10 pick overall, and Josh Allen did not have the stats that Tyree Jackson had. And Josh Allen is seen as raw, but he was still top 10. Tyree Jackson, will he even make the first round? I mean, he's he's and he ran a 45940, 67, 250 pounds. Will he get an opportunity to maybe be a sleeper first round pick? And also, which other sleepers did you, did you see from the combine? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that he's going to be a day one or I don't I'm not wow. sure he's going to even be a day two guy. Wow. And and I'll tell you this, he did he 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 put up really impressive numbers at Buffalo. But I, I very much like how Kyler Murray has benefited from obviously a Drew Brees, a Russell Wilson, a Baker Mayfield coming before him. I think that that Tyree Jackson um, has been hurt by Brock Osweiler, Paxton Lynch, Ryan Mallett coming before him. These mm. big, tall quarterbacks, right? Because before you wanted the big six seven to six eight guy who could see over the line, who had a rocket of an arm. But then all these cats like. Their windup took forever. It took forever for them to deliver the ball, and they all have flamed out, right? Not one of those three quarterbacks, tall quarterbacks that I mentioned are any good. Would you want them on your team whatsoever? Interesting. He has that working against him, uh, almost in the exact opposite as Kyler Murray has the smaller quarterbacks who have been incredibly successful, how he has those working for him. And, uh, and which uh, sleepers? Like, name a couple sleepers that you impress with that could uh, – that... Uh, raised, elevated their draft status. I'll, I'll tell you a guy that I wrote about uh, before the combine is Nikhil Harry, wide, uh, Arizona yes. State wide receiver. Yes, he, he's a cat. He was born. Uh, he was born in Canada, but he's actually from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, a small Caribbean island. Uh, and he's going to be the first ascension to make it to the NFL. And the big question mm-hmm. about him: he's six three, two twenty five. The big question was: is he fast enough? Can he separate? He went out there. Planned to run a four-five-five, and he ran in the four-fives. He answered those questions on his biggest knock um, at a at a heavy weight. He ran at, at a heavier weight than he played at at Arizona State, where he had consecutive thousand-yard seasons. So I think that that time right there at the combine, and I think he also put up twenty-seven reps of bench press, which may have tied DK Metcalf, right, mm-hmm. the incredible Hulk from Mississippi. Um, it, with that, I think that he has definitely gotten himself into the twenties. Uh, in in this year's NFL draft, and and Jonathan, before before I let you go, and I promise we'll let you go in a second. Um, Dwayne Dwayne Haskins, uh, Ohio State uh, quarterback. A lot of people are talking about the Giants maybe uh, picking him up and, be, and him being the successor to Eli. What are your thoughts on him? I, I was extremely impressed with him during this college college football season. But what what do you think about him? He'll be the second black quarterback ever in Giants history, too. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the first? right? Gino was the first, oh, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> exactly. That was, that was quick. One start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's right. Because I remember when Gino got that start, and and a couple people mentioned that, and I was and I started thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, nope, that's true. Um, so no, he, he would be right. Um, you know, I I think Haskins has a fantastic arm. Uh, he he's won at a high level. Um, he he's played. You know. I, I really like him. I don't care that he ran a slow 40. We all knew that he, he's not the mover. Well, Stephen A. didn't know. We love Stephen A., right? We but him. we all knew that he was not a mover, um, and, and that's okay. And so 
If he can go out there, and, and this is the old system, right, where, hey, we're going to draft a quarterback and we want him to learn on the bench for a year. That's kind of gone away, but we aren't that far removed, you know, really like six years or so removed from, hey, guy that we draft, we want you to sit there, we want you to learn, we don't want to ruin you in week two. And this is the other thing that I'll say. I wouldn't want Kyler Murray to go to a Miami Dolphins team either. A Dolphins team that is sure to tank in 2019. I don't want that messing with the young guy's psyche of, you know, just consistently and constantly losing and not having a competitive product out there on the field. And you're trying your best. Like, what does that do to you? That's your entire first year in the, in the NFL. You don't have a competitive product around you. And so I, I think the Dolphins need to go after a veteran, a guy who, they know that they could win with, but probably won't. And so I'm, I'm talking about a Blake Bortles, right? Somebody that everybody around can look at him and be like, all right, that's our quarterback, but he's not going to win many games because you need to only win two or three games to get a top pick and do a full rebuild like the Dolphins want to do. I hear you. <clears throat> well, well, thanks a lot, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan Jones, NFL, uh, national NFL writer for Sports Illustrated. Really appreciate you taking the time out to join us. It's a, it's a complicated topic, the NFL nowadays, so I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, man. Hey, John, you're great, man. Hey, man, you know, you, um, you're very eloquent, man. You need to, I think you should, you could easily segue into writing very broadly about stuff outside the arena. Outside I appreciate the, that, Bill. Coming, yeah, no, absolutely. coming from you, Bill, that means a lot. So, uh, so I appreciate it, and I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, taking the time with me today, and I hope we can do this. Sometime in the near future. We don't need to wait four or five years again, all right? <laughs> well, sure. you know, you made these great steps. By the time we call you again, you'll be owning Sports Illustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope. I yeah. can only hope. All right, fellas. I appreciate you. Thanks a lot, man. Right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you, too. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden, an absolute must-read. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports for your free audiobook. So we would like to now introduce um, a gentleman that has uh, definitely accomplished a lot in the National Basketball Association. He's an NBA champion, uh, NBA all-star with the Portland Trailblazers, part of that uh, magical team, still the youngest team to ever win the NBA title in 1977 and also one of the best defensive players of his time in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And then he went on to coach in the NBA, uh, was a coach um, with the Vancouver Grizzlies, then coached the Memphis Grizzlies and led them to an upset of the San Antonio Spurs when the Grizzlies uh, were the number eight seed and defeated the Spurs and led the Grizzlies also to the uh, conference finals. And uh, the grit and grind was because of this man. And he's and his insight on the game is incredible. We'd like to introduce Coach Lionel Hollins to the show. How are you, sir? All right. 
All right. I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always a privilege and honor to be uh, asked to share whatever I know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy that that happens. The great line of hours, man. You know, <laughs> you know, like one of the one of the biggest compliments I ever received. I was I was in the airport in Chicago somewhere, and some cat came over to me and said, um, "Mr. Hollins, can I have your autograph?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said, I ain't lying up, but I'll take it. <laughs> I, I, I'm different now. I'm either Doc Rivers or I'm Alvin Gentry. Wow. Who's the other one? who we are. Everybody sees us somebody, as somebody else. Alvin, that's right. Alvin I get Gentry. Danny Glover a lot. Danny Glover? That's not okay. bad. Yeah, well, none of us are bad, but it ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. true. Uh, Hey, hey, before we start the question, there's, there's so much I know we all want to ask you, Lionel. Listen, I can remember like it was yesterday in my house in Chicago watching the Portland, you know, the Trailblazers game, and you, the fight broke out. The fight broke out. This is when you guys were playing Philadelphia. The fight broke Ooh, out. Dale and, Dawkins and Mo Lucas. And, and, and Dale, uh, Dale Dawkins, Cole Cock. Uh, no, 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 Maurice Lucas, Cole Cock, Dale Dawkins. Does that does that change does that change that series around? I believe it did. I think that uh, we were young and we were nervous. I think one game we had thirty two turnovers. Another game we had twenty eight turnovers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't us? And uh, you know, and they were just grinding us up. The games were relatively close, but they were still, you know, we weren't playing our game. And I remember uh, Bobby Gross and Daryl Dawkins got hooked up on a, a rebound and. Daryl slams him to the floor. Bobby jumps up. Doug Collins tries to break it up, and lo and behold, Daryl takes a swing and hits Doug Collins, and Maurice came from the other end and elbowed Daryl in the back of the head, and next yeah. thing you know, it's, uh, it's a free fall. And what was so amazing about that, I cannot <laughs> imagine that in the NBA today because the fans were fighting us. Daryl Dawkins' mother was on the court. His brother was on the court. <laughs> Maurice Lucas's mother and sister were on the court. Wow. Our assistant coach, Jack McKinney, was fighting a fan. Yeah. So, you, know, you know, you cannot phantom anything. If it happened like that today, it would be analyzed on every one of those ESPN shows, every Fox show, and they would be talking about who should be out of the NBA for life. But like, right. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I'm glad it was in that era because uh, it, was a, it wasn't as big and bad as everybody would think it is today. But it did change the, 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 the uh, momentum because after, even after the game, you know, they're hollering money, money, money. You know, they up 2-0 and they, they're thinking the series is going to be a sweep. And I remember going back on the plane and uh, – uh, Herm Gilliam sat there and he said, man, we're not going out like this. He said, even if we don't win, we're not going out like this where, you know, they, they're trying to punk us, they're, you know, beat us on the court and they're talking money, money, money and all of that. We're going to compete. And I remember when we got back to Portland, we went to practice and Jack Ramsey called us together and he said, listen, we're not changing anything. He said, they haven't done anything to stop us. We've stopped ourselves. We have to get back and be ourselves, be poised, play within ourselves and not try to do too much just because it was a a championship series. And I think he was talking to me more than anybody because I was out of control. And, uh, uh, and so we went that first game and we were still a little nervous, a little shaky early on, but 
our our bench guys came off in the in the, at the end of the third quarter and spurted, and we took off and beat them. And then the next game it was a blowout. We go back to Philly; it's a blowout at halftime. They're getting booed at halftime, and we <laughs> win that game. And we come back home for the final game, which turned to be the final game. It was the sixth game, and I remember uh, it was the best game of the series. George McGinnis, who was terrible for most of the series, had a great game, but not a George McGinnis game. He was just happy to make shots in this particular game. He wasn't dominating. He just he had some shots and he made them. And Doug Collins didn't do very well. And you know it was all the doc show in that series. And you know, World Be Free wasn't much of World Be Free in that series. And Daryl Dawkins, this is one of the highlights of that series. And I asked Luke about it later on. But during the introductions, you know, one guy got introduced, the second guy get in, gets introduced, and then Big Mo gets introduced. He runs down to the Sixers bench, and he shakes hands with Daryl Dawkins, which turned him into putty. He was wow. no good. He wow. was no good for the rest. Uh, <laughs> I said, Luke, why would you do that for? Why'd you, what would, he said, man, I've been up all night thinking about how am I going to defuse this guy <laughs> because he wants to take my head off, and he could if he if he's in that mindset. And so he said when he got down there, Daryl was like frozen, like he's thinking that Mo wants to fight him again. And Mo reaches out, and Daryl wasn't about to grab his hand. He reached and grabbed it and pulled him tight. And uh, that move, to me, was as, as significant as the fight itself changing wow. that mindset was Luke going out there and defusing Daryl because Daryl would have been tearing down rims for the rest of the series if he wasn't defused. Mm. Wow. Wow. And, that's, a, that's a great memory. And Coach Hollins, how, right. how interesting was it to join the 76ers right after and see, because, you know, Doc, of course, uh, fell short. He should have had the final shot in game six, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but, you know, he would have missed it too. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, but you guys would have won Game Seven anyway, so it's all good. <laughs> no, nah, I don't know about that. I was at Game Seven, but but, yeah, but I, I hear your question. But yeah, I was wondering. You joined the Seventy Sixers, and then you know the disappointment of losing in in eighty and eighty two as well. Like, how was it wearing on Doc? at that time and, and how interesting was it that you joined the Sixers after defeating them just a couple of seasons earlier for the title? Well, it's interesting because I was on a flight with doc after the all-star game, just before I was traded. And he made a comment that, you know, they could use somebody like me. And I didn't know that I was about to get traded uh, at that time. I knew they'd been talking trade, uh, even from the beginning of the season, because, you know, um, Bill Walton left, sued the team, sued the team doctor, and went to the Clippers. And so they were about ready to break up everything because when Bill left, Luke stood up and said, hey, if y'all going to call me the best player on the team, I need to get paid like the best player on the team. I had had a knee surgery and missed some games the year before. And so, you know, my contract was coming up and they weren't wanting to pay me. So I was on the trading block as well. So, you know, it was a it was the tearing down of that championship squad, which wouldn't happen so much today. But going to the Sixers, I was happy. And here's another interesting sidebar: is that I was supposed to go to Denver, hmm. 
Chicago, Philly, and Denver all had pretty much the same offer on the table, a first-round pick for me. The problem was is when I came into the league, my agent sitting in Beverly Hills in Larry Weinberger's office said, hey, you know, my guy grew up in Vegas. He went to Arizona State. He doesn't know anything about cold weather. I request two things after we had agreed to the money. He said, I request that you guys give him an umbrella, buy him an umbrella because it rains every day in Portland, and then don't trade him to a city that's colder than Portland. So, in effect, I had a no-trade, a partial no-trade, which turned out to be a full no-trade because the three teams that were interested in me were all colder than Portland. I have a jersey in my closet that Denver had made up and was going to have the, they have the press conference, and I was supposed to fly in. But the fact that I had that clause, I was able to choose the team I wanted to go to, and I chose Philly. <laughs> now, uh, you know, these are all the sidelines that people don't even know the insides that go on. It's so, so great about wow. being in, 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 in the, on the inside of any organization and, and corporation. But the interesting thing about going to, to uh, Philly was Luke and I got traded at the same time. We were in Kansas City. Luke flew home back to Portland. I decided to stay with the team. And I remember Jack Ramsey coming to my room and saying, Philadelphia scout Jack McMahon is here to see you, but I can't. I told him I couldn't guarantee you were going to play. They stopped playing. I hadn't played in four or five games. And so uh, I go to the game that night. I play. I play well. We win a close game. I help us win the game. Ironically, that one game got them in the playoffs. They they made the playoffs, I think, by one game. Hmm. But we leave Kansas City and we go to San Diego, and we're at shoot around. And Jack is telling me, you know, I need you to mentor uh, Jimmy Paxson. Jimmy was a rookie. I need you to mentor Jimmy Paxson, and you know, he's going to be a great player in this league, and I think you could help him. But all along, Jack knowing that I'm going to be traded in another hour. <laughs> wow. So after shoot-around that day, I go to go and get on the bus. They leave me. The bus takes off. And so I have Ooh. to run to the edge of the, dri- the driveway and knock on the door. The bus driver lets me. I say, oh, so that's how you treat me. Up. <laughs> I guess that I'm not on the team anymore. So I, I get back to the hotel in, in San Diego. My agent calls me and tells me I've been traded. <clears throat> and, wow. and so... I get on a plane, fly back to Portland. I don't play in San Diego that night. I take the red eye. I get back. I take the red eye. And I, uh, uh, Luke and I fly to Chicago together. I still have a photo of Luke and myself standing in the Chicago airport. He was going to New Jersey, and I was going to Philly. We had a connection in Chicago. And I get to Philly the next morning about 9 o'clock. I go and lay down. I get up. They take me to a press conference. I play the game. I played 30-some minutes in the game as a starter that day. I just get there Sunday morning. We play at 1 o'clock. We play the Lakers, and we beat the Lakers on national TV. That was very interesting. And then the next day, we go to practice. Another sidebar, Doug Collins had been hurt and had started helping over at University of Pennsylvania as an assistant coach. He wasn't even coming to practice or even coming around the team at all. I get there and play that game. Doug Collins is at practice on Monday morning. <laughs> and then wow. we're starting to practice and nobody's 
practicing. Nobody's working hard. Everybody's kind of going through the motions. And they're asking me, why are you practicing so hard? We can't win a championship at practice. And Daryl <laughs> Dawkins is the one that made the comment. And I said, Daryl, that's why we beat you. <laughs> this is how we were every day. You're talking about in a game or in a championship game. We were this way every day of the week. We were this way against everybody we played against. And I had a great experience in Philly. It was, we had a great team, and we did great things. We got to two NBA finals. We were in the Eastern Conference finals three times. We beat the Celtics twice, lost to them in seven games the one time. Should have beaten them in that series as well. But, you know, great friendships with Doc and Murray's Cheeks and Carwell Jones and Joe yes. Dawkins, rest their souls, and Bobby mm-hmm. Jones. I mean, it, it was a great group to be around. But when we went on the road, we were like, uh, uh, you know, the, the Rolling Stones or mm-hmm. any other great art uh, group of guys that traveled. You know, we come into the hotel and it didn't matter what time we got in, you know, the hotel lobby was full. We had to fight to get to our locker. After the games, you had to fight to get to the bus because we had the greatest player at the time and, and, and Julius Irving on our team. But, uh, you know, I, I think that if, if we had a little bit more uh, team play, when, when I say that, not that we were selfish, but the offense was catered to Doc and to Daryl Dawkins, and everybody else kind of played around that. And I think the one thing that we had over them when I was in Portland was that we, whoever was open, and we got the ball, we moved the ball, we cut, we got laughs, we got wide open shots, we got fast breaks. Whereas in Philly, we ran, but we ran to throw the ball to Doc in the post. And that's not a bad option. I'm not knocking that at all, but I think once we got to the finals, the Lakers had a defense that was catered to stopping Doc. And, you know, we still needed to go to Doc, and he still was trying to do his all. And, you know, he wasn't getting much support from us because, frankly, we weren't getting a lot of opportunities to, to really help him. And uh, uh, But, you know, again, it was a great experience, and I love playing with Doc, and I love getting to know Doc. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a good person as well as a great player. Mm. <clears throat> hey, Lana, I've got a question that kind of comes to the here, you know, to, to the day. Uh, you, you talked about being traded, and that's a lot of talk about um, how trade talk has sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, really messed up the Lakers' young players and messed up uh, some of the Boston players. Can you see that? I mean, you know, they're saying that uh, the players and the Lakers, the young players, were really upset because they knew that uh, LeBron was sort of behind that, and the, the, the you know, a couple of Boston players, same thing. Could you see that? Is that one thing that's true? That was true when you play now. That that could really be a very traumatizing sort of thing for a young player. That that could that could be that disruptive. Well, you know, this is a new day and age and a new mindset because when we played, I mean, they tell you the first day of training camp, you know, you one could be cut, <laughs> two you could be traded. Now nobody gets cut unless you you know, not drafted or somebody that came up from the D league or G league, but everybody else has guaranteed contracts. And hmm. so our mindset was understanding the business part of it. Plus when you heard your name in a trade rumor, you went out and played harder because you wanted that team to trade for you. Wow, <laughs> you, know, really? you know, they didn't want you anymore. You wanted that other team to want you more so that, that you would have a place. And the thing is, is no matter where you get traded to, 
somebody's going to pay your your contract. You, every two weeks, you're going to get paid. Now it's about respect. It's about loyalty. And I always say to the players, loyalty is every two weeks when you check your bank account and they made a deposit. <laughs> right. That's the <laughs> you know. And the respect comes from uh, the fact that they gave you that contract because they honored what you were capable of doing or what you did do. Because we played in the area, you could play as great as you want. You go back to Oscar and those guys, they had to fight for every dollar. And they had great years. Some of their numbers were so much better than the numbers of myself and people that played in my era compared to them. And yet we were able to get more money than they got, and they deserve more money. And But they were the, 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 the foundation that allowed us to have a better ability to bargain and you know, getting away with the uh, the uh, reserve clause when so you never were free and the teams kept, you know, the contracts got shorter. We had guys coming in the league, had seven-year contracts with no money, $60,000, 50000 a year, you know, for seven years. Now guys come in with three or four, and they're able to get a second-year option out and all these things that are, are the benefit from those guys before us. That, you know, we walked on their shoulders and they paid the price. We, we, the NBA has a great union that has great power, more power than any union in, in all the sports. And it all comes from those guys that played in the 50s and the 60s that, that laid the groundwork and threatened to, to uh, walk out on an all-star game so that we could just be recognized as a union. And then they were always willing to walk away at a tenuous time for the NBA because TV contract wasn't that big and the fan base wasn't that big so to 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 not understand that is the reason you would think that they're not supposed to trade you demar DeRozan was upset because they told him well they may tell you one day that they don't want to trade you're not going to but things come up Kawhi Leonard came up so demar DeRozan, you got to go mm. it's not <laughs> a knock on you it's just a Kawhi is a better player Right. And it's, you're a great player yourself, but he is a better player. That's like, you know, uh, you know, in the Anthony Davis, you guys are rookies. You haven't won anything. Anthony Davis is one of the premier players. And so if they're trained for, you can go to New Orleans and say, we're going to show the people in New Orleans that, you know, we, 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 we're going to do something. You know, you, you have pride. You, you, you step up. It's like, you know, when a coach used to get on a player at practice, that player, you know that player was coming and having fire in his nose. You know, he's like a bull. You know, he he get ready to come charge him because he doesn't want the coach to get on him. So he's going to come and take it out on you because you're probably the reason the coach is yelling at him. I guess getting back to, you know, the game today, and and as compared to as compared to how it was when you played, or even even when you coached. I know you coached in, in you were, you were head coach in Brooklyn up to 2016, but it seems like even in the last couple of years, the game is changing so much on the floor. Uh, you know, more spacing, you know, no more big men in the post. What, what's your take on that? Is that something that you, that you think is a good thing, um, or, or do, you, do you miss the old days? Well, change is good, for sure. Change is really good. Uh, the change just for the sake of changing is not good. Right. Uh, there are a number of players that will be 86 out of the NBA because they don't shoot threes. Right. I think that's bad. Mm. I think there's got to be a balance. If you have the talent like the Warriors, or if you have a talent 
like James Harden, you can play that way. But a lot of teams don't quite have that kind of talent across the board. And it's not just the fact that the Warriors shoot threes. It's not just the fact that James Harden shoots threes. But James Harden can get 14 to 20 free throws a night. Right. That's huge. So when he's making threes, he's still scoring. But if you can do he can only shoot threes, don't get to the free throw line, don't get to the paint. So when you're missing threes, that means we're just going to lose. <laughs> right. Because we have no versatility. We have no balance. And I think that there's going to be another big guy similar to MB who can go inside and work but also shoot threes, similar to Towns who can go inside but also shoot threes. But the one that comes next is going to be a guy that's so dominant inside, everybody's got to go get somebody to guard him or at least compete against him. LeBron James, it looks like the Los Angeles Lakers will not make the playoffs. Uh, Very disappointing for the organization, for him, for his legacy, when you think about it, because he goes to the Western Conference and doesn't get it done. But there's been a lot of chatter uh, saying that he should shut it down. Do you think he should just shut it down, especially at his age, and just wait till next season and just rest up? No. (laughs) That's my quick, short answer. My expounded answer is this. He still gets paid. He's not hurt. Mm. And the fans pay a lot of money to come see the Lakers play. I think the whole resting thing hurts the league because fans come to see the stars play. You don't go on Broadway and two or three nights not play. Right. If, if, the, show, if that, the show is closing, you still conclude it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, yeah. and, 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 and the other thing is, too, is that when you go to a concert and the star doesn't show up, you want your money back. <laughs> and they, they have to refund it if he can't perform. And, and so it's, it's about the fans. It's about competing. And just the word I want to say is, is respecting your contract. Mm-hmm. And I love LeBron, and I, uh, and I don't think it's going to hurt his legacy that he doesn't make the playoffs. He got hurt. If he doesn't hurt his groin, the Lakers make the playoffs. I right. guarantee you that. Right. right, no question. But the problem is that the young guys couldn't play last year without LeBron, and they certainly couldn't play this year without LeBron. <laughs> they have to develop and grow to where if LeBron misses three or four games because of injury, they can still compete, excuse me, compete and win. That's, the, that's what makes great teams. Great teams aren't made just because they have the star. They have a whole group. And LeBron called out when he talked about Giannis when Milwaukee beat him. He said they don't just have Giannis. They have a great group around him. Right. And that's what it takes to be a champion. It's, you have the stars. Kareem misses the game in 1980 because of a sprained ankle. The Lakers still beat us because they had a great group of guys that still went out and play to a high level against us in Philadelphia. On the road. Not at home, but on the road. What did the Knicks do when Willis Reed was hurt? They still beat, you know, the Lakers. That, that, that's, that's why, you know, everybody gives the hype and the publicity to the star. Your stars are needed and necessary. Don't get me wrong. Because they're the closers. But those other guys are the guys that ignite and start the race, and then you got the closer that puts the hammer down. But when that hammer is out, 
they have the ability to rise up for a short period of time and still win. Right. Boom, didn't they go to the Eastern Conference Finals after Michael retired with that same group of guys minus Michael? Come on. Semis. You got to be able to play without your star at some point. One last question before uh, we let you go. I wanted to take you to. Before I ask you a question. Oh, before. Okay. (laughs) The second to last question. Um, <laughs> taking you back to the East, because one of the most compelling things of the NBA this year is the East is the Eastern Conference. After having years of, you know, years of down period, down years uh, in the conference, now you have four, or we think we have four solid teams, um, any of which could come out of there. Um, I wanted to get I wanted to get your opinion on who you th- who you think will come out of the East, and also. Um, you know, you were coached with the Nets from 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 2014 to 2016, and the Nets, you know, have have reinvigorated themselves and and look like they'll be making the playoffs too. I want to get your feelings on the Nets and also who you think will come out of the East. Well, you know, I really like Toronto. They've been on the cusp, and they've run into LeBron, and uh, now he's gone. And then you have Milwaukee. I like. Right. I like the Sixers. I like. Tobias Harris a lot. I like. I think he brings energy. He brings consistent effort along with Jimmy Butler that I think that the the Sixers lacked a little bit of last year because they were a little immature. But those two vets bring that bottom line to the game and to practice every day, which raises everybody else's standard. And so they have a great chance. Uh, you know, Boston they they have some chemistry issues for sure. Right. Whatever the reasons are, they have chemistry issues, and how they solve them is is something that will determine how far they can go. Uh, you know, you look at what they did last year without Kyrie, without Hayward. Now they have both of those guys. One guy is struggling, the other guy is playing great, but they don't seem happy. They don't seem to be energized when they go out on the court. And you know, chemistry is fickle. Mm. So, you know, if I were if I were saying who I think is going to do it, I mean, I would have to go with, with one of the three other teams and not Boston. But Boston <laughs> could get it together. The year we went, won the championship, we won six of our last seven games to right our ship because we were struggling. We, we struggled to win on the road, and we were struggling because we were out on the road, and we finally won six of our last seven games, and we went into the playoffs with momentum of believing that we were good enough, you know. And uh, it's important to to have that mindset that, hey, we can beat anybody anywhere. And, uh, you know, I think a couple of years ago, everybody was talking about, let's go, you know, one through 16. It doesn't matter which conference it is, you know, which I don't think that's the right thing to do. But and also, you know, the the East is so bad. The East is so bad. But the East has risen up. There's young team. You talk about the Brooklyn Nets. Mm -hmm. The Brooklyn Nets changed cultures. They created a culture and a standard of how they were going to play. And they did it for like three years. And then after a while, it was tough to beat them. And then this year they're knocking on the door of being in the playoffs. And that's how you do it. You know, you have to lay a foundation. You can't build a house without the foundation. You start the foundation then you put the walls up, you put the roof on, and then you get this culture and a standard of how we do business. You look at the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks are actually doing that. Even though they're not winning now, you can see that they are not the same attitude and culture and, and, and they have a higher standard than they had before Lloyd Pierce got there. Right. You see the Sacramento Kings, the same thing. So, you know, you can see teams changing and, 
and are on the verge of taking off and being a, a decent team in the future. And then there's some other teams you don't know if they're ever going to get there. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, this last question for me. Do you um, do you want to get back in this? I mean, you, you know, you've been you're going to be doing the show with Sirius, and you've been seeing the NBA. Do you want to get back in after everything? And if you get back in, uh, you're going to basically be the same type of coach? Well, I would love to get back in, and I would ask the question of what type of coach am I? <laughs> See, my whole career is transition in high school, college, with the Portland Trailblazers, with the Sixers, we played up-tempo. We picked up full court, and we ran. We put pressure on you offensively and defensively. When I got to Memphis, that was my mindset to play that way. Unfortunately, I had two superior inside players that weren't going to run full speed very often, not full mm-hmm. court. Now, they may run from half court to the post, but they're not running full court. And then we didn't have a bunch of wings that we could throw the ball ahead to that could make plays consistently. So a coach's responsibility is to evaluate his roster and try to create a system that helps the majority of the guys succeed. You want everybody to succeed, but there's some people that will get lost in the system, and that that happens. But you want the majority of guys to succeed. You want to set a standard, create a culture. We play hard all the time, which shouldn't be that's taught skill. It should be what you your reasonable service, and then. We play together, and we don't quit. We compete every night. No matter what the score is, we go out and compete. When you do those kinds of things, you have an opportunity to be in games. You may not win because you may not be talented enough, but yet the other team has to beat you. And the last thing is you just have to be flexible because when I started out and I left training, and we're going to run, we're going to run. Jack Ramsey was a guy. You could score a lot of points. But we couldn't get back and defend. And we weren't running enough to score as many points as what we thought we could against each other at training camp. So when we start playing other teams, well, some of that changed. And I made an assessment, and I talked to the coaches, and I talked to the players, and I said, this is what we're going to do. When I was in Brooklyn, I think that first year we made the playoffs, we changed offenses two or three times to finally figure out what was best for the group. <clears throat> and when we did that, we finally, I think Darren Williams and Brooke Lopez had this unbelievable chemistry and in the pick and roll, and we were able to get it together, win enough games to make the playoffs, and actually had a, a good series against the Hawks that year. <clears throat> but to answer your question, yes, I would love to get back and coach. And just to answer the second part of it in another way, I coached the AAU team this summer out in California, and we ran, and we scored points. But I had a really good team <laughs> to do that. So if I have a team that has guys that are – slow and plotting and can't get back on defense and can't get up the court quick enough to score, then we won't. I, I haven't had an interview in a couple of years and haven't even had a sniff at it as an uh, assistant coach in a couple of years. So I'm looking forward to this spring, and uh, hopefully somebody will will turn the clock back and see that veteran, experienced coaches still have a, have a purpose in this league, and especially with young teams uh, as they're growing. And... Uh, Maybe I'll get a shot. God willing. Well, it'll be great to see you back. Hey, Lada, thanks so much, man. You're, you're the best. And I'll be looking forward to hearing you on Sirius on, on the weekend. 
All right, man. I appreciate your comments about the last show, and you guys take care, and uh, it's always fun, and, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate it, the opportunity. Thank you, thanks. I right. really appreciate it. So we're back. We we are joined once again by our producer Aaron Mathewson. Hello. What's up? What's up, Aaron? How are you? I, I hear. Uh, I hear you got Hi. some. I hear you have some things on your mind. You know, we're we're, br- yeah. we're bringing in Aaron to. You know, we we, we bring her in. Uh, we we want to know what's on her mind. Um, what she thinks is interesting because usually, it's something we haven't thought about that we should be thinking about. I uh, like to, to share it with you uh, offline. Um, I guess you know over the weekend, uh, leaving Never HBO's Leaving Neverland came out, and it's all over Twitter. You know, the Undefeated covered it, Soraya McDonald covered it, and what it has left me thinking about is what do you do when you learn that you're a, a musician that you loved or an artist that you grew up on, you ch- you value their music. And you learn that they may have done some stuff that you really don't agree with. Like if it is true that he and and I haven't watched the documentary. I've this is the Neverland. This is the Le- Le- Neverland. Yeah, so you're, getting, you're getting deep on us, huh? Yeah, I just <laughs> I just feel like you know this is a question everybody's asking. Like how somebody asked me like I work with like a 21 year old and they were like, what are you going to do about R. Kelly? And I think the same thing extends to Michael Jackson. Like, do you listen? <laughs> you put a disclaimer like we're pl- going to play this song at this party but I don't agree with him sexually assaulting young boys like what do you what, so what are you doing so I have quite a few Michael Jackson songs on my iPod and I have not been I o- I've only listened to covers from other um, artists so far what do you mean covers what's that mean um, I like uh, let's see who is it um, Alien Ant Farm covered Smooth Criminal I don't know if you're, it's a, they're like a rock band. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, so you are, so you are making a concerted effort not to listen to Michael Jackson. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure. And I'm wondering what and you, you haven't guys, even watched the documentary. How do you know that, what's even going on? Cause I've been reading about it and I've been uh, listening okay. to people who have, who I know, I follow journalists who I know are also survivors of abuse and what they're saying about it. And right. so I'm like, Oh, this is going to be heavy. So are you guys oh. going to watch? Do you, what do you think? <sighs> oh yeah. This is tough because being a musician and, and, and listening to the greats and, you know, like, for example, Quincy Jones, my idol, but and he produced Michael off the wall and Thriller, you know, right. and, and everything. And The Wiz, too. So, like, oh, God, it's so tough. I, I will watch the documentary because it's, it's good to get the perspective of what's going on, too. But it's a shame that he's not alive to defend himself, yeah. you know. Um but with listening to the music of 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 R. Kelly of Michael Jackson, it, wow! I, I I I I usually separate it, you know, because I just I I want to listen to what makes their songwriting or performance great, you know. Um, but and and I'll talk about the music itself, but that's basically it. Like so, I, I kind of separate it. But but all the things that have come out is just. Just extremely upsetting, you know, overall involving both individuals. Yeah, I mean, you know, with, with R. Kelly, I mean, he is alive. And I guess for, for a while, though, I've, we've, I've talked about just, you know, not necessarily want to support the music, not, not listen to the music, you know. Um, when you don't know something, you don't know. But as you get to know something, then you do know. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you know, you, you can start making choices based on that. You know, some people can't separate it. Well, it's just a great... And I'm probably, I guess you could go almost to a lot of well-known people who make great music, and then you find out about their lives. 
And you're like, wow, you know, if I had known that, maybe I wouldn't support him. But, you know, um, it gets into do you separate? And, and I guess in R. Kelly's case, um, yeah, I just said, well, I just won't support that music, you know. Right. It's it's hard to separate in R. Kelly's case, too, because he actually was, like, singing about some of that stuff. <laughs> so, no. I mean, it, it, right. it, gets, it gets to be, you know, it's a little, it's very uncomfortable. Um you know, I watched I watched the whole R. Kelly documentary. It was very disturbing. Uh, the the people the, the the victims were very uh, credible to me. They came across as very believable. Um, so, you know, my 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 feelings about him definitely changed. And and you know, and I feel, you know, I was definitely part of the problem to some extent because, you know, we did know about. This, these issues before we knew about the existence of a tape before and that didn't really stop me from listening to his music before that but I have to give credit to the to the the uh, directors and the producers of the documentary they they laid out a better case than the prosecutors did right you know right. so you know I, I, it's just a, it became it became so clear uh, of what he was doing and, I, and and the Michael Jackson thing I think it is a difference too that he's not with us He's passed, so he's, you know, to some extent he's met his maker, you know what I mean? So, whereas R. Kelly hasn't, we don't, people, we don't really feel that R. Kelly has, has uh, you know, paid any kind of price for what he's done. He's still living, he's still reaping, you know, benefits of his music. So mm-hmm. I think that's a little difference to the point where I don't know, I really don't know if I'm going to erase all of Michael Jackson's music from my, from my ar- archive. And, and why wasn't he persecuted in the 90s? You know, like this was happening back then, supposed you know, allegedly. So, you know, not allegedly, no, he was it was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but this is what I mean. Like now, the backlash from the public, mm. this this wasn't happening prevalently, like in the '90s or the 2000s. But it's different when the social media age now. But and the me too. You know, in the me too, me too movement. But, but he should have been dropped from RCA. You know, he was on Jive RCA at first and then on RCA Records. So he should have been dropped, like, years earlier. So I, I just feel... But at the same time, it doesn't excuse what he did. Don't get me wrong. But um, it's it's just, you know, now he's, he's you know, it's better late than never, I gather. And and it's it's just a shame. What's, what Like, it's disturbing what's going on and what's being said and everything. It's funny. When you were talking to Vate, I, was, I thought, I wasn't sure which guy you were talking about because they both have had uh, complaints against them for years. They were both taken to trial, acquitted, and now stuff is coming out. Mm-hmm. Oh, both. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, well, we are being, uh, being alive, you know. Yeah. And, and that's like interesting. That, that's, so. a, that's a huge point that both of these guys actually went, were accused, went to trial, and were acquitted. Right, mm-hmm. and usually, in in our justice system, that's what we depend on to find out whether something happened or not, whether right. whether the whether the you know what the truth is. So it's not you know they actually went through that and were found not guilty, and obviously we know mistakes are made in the justice system every day. Right. You know, mo- you know, usually it's the other way around for people of color. Right. <laughs> usually they're convicted right. whether they did it or not. Teflon dons. But That's what they but, are. I yeah. can't believe it. Right. <laughs> but in, in this case, they, you know, they seem to have gotten away with it. Um, did you? Are you, you going to watch the Lorena Bobbitt documentary? Lorena Bobbitt. Uh, what? What's where? Where is that? It's Amazon. Amazon. I'll check it. I mean, that's interesting. 
Is that is that a series too? Uh, I believe it's like four parts. Interesting. Like, yeah. Well, well, yeah, I remember that. That was uh, that shook up the world for sure. The male, definitely the male world. You know, I think if any, if these documentaries are doing anything, it's not even to make you. Li- should you listen? Should you not listen? It's. I think it's giving people a dialogue to be like, we can actually talk about this. Like in the Bobbitt case, it's like marital rape. Uh, I mean, certainly cutting off someone's penis is like. That's what it was about. I don't. I don't even remember that. That it was based on him, on the on him raping her. See, she said that she was abused and raped, mm-hmm. and um, and you know that's a contentious thing. Can you be raped if you're married? Yeah, and um, can. yeah, and then and then her, um, she was I guess I don't. Know, she was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, mm-hmm. and it's like, are you insane if you're getting abused? Like, what's? So I think there's like a lot. There's a lot happening that we weren't ready to deal with. I just think all these documentaries are very interesting, and it's like, yeah, Lorraine Bob. <laughs> I mean, well, hey, you know, but that—that's um, when you, the consequences happen when you. He was an abuser, uh, mental and physical abuser. So, she reacted in her way, you know, and and I don't <laughs> condone it. I don't condone it, but right, right, right. she reacted, and and she, and, and she had enough, and yeah. she was tired, so. Right. That's what it is. And and you see, like, even after that happened, he turned out to, the choices he made still showed what type of human being he right. is. So. Yeah, I'll, ch- I'll, ch- I'll, I'll check that out. We should, all, that we should out. all watch it all and then come back. I figure if you can watch Game of Thrones I, and watch all the gore. But we know it's fake. That's yeah. the difference. You know, this is, like, real stuff. And from yeah. what I, and from the Michael Jackson doc, you know, from what I hear, the people are very credible as far yeah. as that goes too, and they're telling they're telling like specific stories and they're getting into details. It's not pretty, you know. It's not yeah. pretty. So, yeah. um, you know, I'll probably try to avoid it. But but the you know the curiosity in me will probably you know I'll, I'll check it out. I'll the, check it out because you like want to know you want to know people's truths. I feel like the Bill know? Cosby doc has got to be on its way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, I'm sure about Come that. Come on, Aaron. Come on. <laughs> sure about that. <laughs> how many? How many at a time are you gonna throw? I know, it? right? In a couple of years. All right. Would all that right. be an Oscar contender? Right. Oh. Possibly. <laughs> all right. Well, that that's about it for us today. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for uh, of course. you know, thank you making this a very serious show at the end. Uh, thank you, thank you. No, but mm. it's stuff that needs to be talked about. Um, and you know, three documentaries out there that people that people need to see. Yeah. Um, the the Michael Jackson one is on HBO. HBO uh, Leaving Neverland. Amazon did Lorena, mm-hmm. and then Lifetime did Surviving R. Kelly. Oh, HBO, that's right. right. Leaving, oh, Sheila Nevins. I mean, you know, they do great work at uh, HBO. I got to give yeah. Sheila Nevins mm-hmm. a shout out. She's mm-hmm. the the head documentary executive producer for wow. HBO Docs. She's been there like twenty some odd years. Like she's brilliant. So. I'm sure as a film, right. it'll be outstanding, you know. So I'll watch it from that as a film, from a film perspective. Cool. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's about it for us. Um, we're going to call it a day. Thanks, thanks for listening again. Thanks to our guests, Lionel Hollins and Jonathan Jones. Uh, they were great, of course. Um, definitely like and comment on Bill Roden on Sports on iTunes. Check us out on SoundCloud as well. Check us out on Twitter at BrosPod, on Instagram at BrosPod, on Facebook, Bill Roden on Sports. Um, you know, feel free to give us any kind of, any comments. And uh, we're still looking for a uh, 
a, a closing seg- segment name, so you could feel free to chime in there too. Nabate, any, anything on your mind? Well, I came up with that segment name, but what was it? Was uh, thoughts of candor? Thoughts of candor. So tell thoughts us. If, of candor. Tell us if you like that. Yeah. Well, let 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 us know on uh, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. No doubt, Bill. Signing out. Signing out. All right. See you guys next week. See you guys next week. Peace. Big show. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.